it's Chris, the Supply Chain Doctor and host of Supply Chain is Boring. Over the years, I've interviewed some of the brightest minds and successful leaders in the world of supply chain management. In May 2020, I sat down with Ken Ackerman to learn more about him and collect a little supply chain management history. After our discussion, Ken told me about a similar interview he had with Dr. James Stock many years prior and the related work Dr. Stock was doing. In November 2020, I was able to catch up with Dr. James Stock to learn about his work. As an academic in the field of transportation, logistics, and now what we call supply chain management, Jim was well-connected to many of the original academic thought leaders in this space. Jim did interviews with many of these original thought leaders and shared them with me. The list includes Ken Ackerman, Don Bowersox, James Haskett, Bud Lalonde, John Langley Jr., Tom Menser, Tom Spee, and Daniel Wren. To carry on the great work started by Dr. Jim Stock, I'm dusting off these interviews and bringing them to you on Supply Chain is Boring. What's your most fond memory of the military? Well, I think the fond memory is the relationships with other uh, people that you form. Uh, being drafted, uh, we had a highly diverse uh, set of people. These were not people who had selected themselves into the uh, Army. Uh, there are characters that I uh, will probably never forget. Uh, but I think, too, uh, the certain uh, uh, discipline. Uh, I probably needed a little of that. Um, uh, things as simple as making your bed and keeping your uh, area policed around that bed, uh, which probably influenced the way I've behaved ever since. But then there was also the aspect of travel, and uh, I think uh, the Army gave me a much more worldly view uh, that I've never lost. In fact, it uh, sort of paved the way for a lifetime of, uh, of travel and an attempt to understand how other people think and speak and eat, all that sort of thing. So in some, it would uh, appear that you view that as a very positive experience in your life. I wouldn't have missed it for anything. Wouldn't want to do it again, necessarily, but I wouldn't have missed it for anything. Okay. Now, you mentioned going from the military into the MBA program at Stanford um, and working with Gaten Germain, who um, uh, was one of the early people in uh, logistics starting out in transportation. Um, you mentioned his influence, working for him as sort of the secretary. Uh, how did he influence you to sort of concentrate on that area uh, in your area of study? Well, it was a short step from uh, working with him as a secretary to working with him and um, his protege, Nick Glaskowski, as a case writer uh, preparing materials. Um, since I, uh, they had been very good about making sure that I became acquainted with some of the members of the executive program class, this transportation management program, uh, they suggested that maybe I follow up with some of those people and explore the possibility of writing cases. Um, it, uh, there were some other people that they also encouraged uh, to join this group guy named Bob Ivey, who later became head of United Vintners, a, a large 
uh, uh, wine producing organization in California. A fellow named John Morgridge, who later became CEO and, and uh, chairman of Cisco Systems uh, in the 90s. Uh, in other words, a, a group of people who interacted in ways that sort of led to an expectation of bigger things. And I, and I think Gaten Germain really, uh, being a young, successful member of the Stanford Business School faculty, sort of instilled in us the idea that you can, you can do anything. Uh, this place is wide open as an opportunity and you ought to take advantage of it. Okay, so based upon that uh, MBA experience um, and working with Gate and Germain, that is what sort of was the catalyst to get you into the advanced degree? He took me aside and suggested one day that I consider going on for a doctorate. Uh, I think my first question was, I don't know what that means. And uh, he described for me what the life of an academic uh, might be like and, um, and, and expressed confidence that I could complete the program and uh, provided basically the inspiration. He, he was an example of what one could do at a, at a young age, at an age that seems young now. Mm -hmm. And uh, and so he, he was the he was the spark uh, that uh, put me forward. He'd be one of the few people in my life who uh, really influenced the course of my work. So no regrets leaving that retailing uh, career behind as you'd anticipated. Oh yeah, a lot of regrets. I've uh, I've regretted that all my life. Uh, in fact, uh, only through my board work have I been able to get back to it. I, uh, I've served on the boards of uh, companies called Brooks Fashion, that goes back a ways, uh, Office Depot, uh, Limited Brands. I'm, I'm partial to retailing mm -hmm. uh, in that respect and I suppose that's been a way for me to, to work out the frustrations of never having been able to get into the store and manage one. Mm -hmm. So. In this doctoral program that uh, Gaines Germain sort of got you into this interest in being a professor, um, how did you get that first, you know, the process you went through in getting that first academic position? Well, in those days, uh, you're, you were not supposed to write letters on your own behalf. Uh, there was a philosophy at Stanford that uh, it didn't even make much difference if you went to the academic meetings uh, that what was really important was that um, you have uh, a sponsor write a letter on your behalf. And I had uh, a fellow named David Faville, who was a professor of marketing at, uh, at the school at that time, write some letters on my behalf. Um, uh, Gate and Germain wrote some letters, uh, probably made a phone call or two, and I uh, ended up with, as I recall, three offers um, from that process. Uh, the University of New Hampshire, University of Michigan, and Ohio State University. I recall going up to the University of New Hampshire during something called the Winter Carnival up there, 
uh, getting off the train and stepping into a five-foot snowbank uh, in a on a campus where the uh, it seemed to me uh, the students were almost as cold as the weather. So uh, that was one of my experiences. Um, and so my major choice was between uh, Michigan and Ohio State. Okay. And how did you make that decision? I, uh, I made the decision, I think, based on my interaction with the people on both of those faculties. Um, uh, they were, they, I think, were both quite uh, hospitable. Although, um, I must say that the uh, uh, there was a feeling of warmth at Ohio State that uh, sort of encouraged me to uh, to want to join that uh, faculty, even though I think it was the lowest of the three offers uh, that I received. I, uh, I'll never forget the starting uh, wage at that time. It was uh, $7,200. And uh, uh, I thought that was, uh, sure, a bit of a sacrifice from 7600 or whatever Michigan had offered, but uh, uh, I was willing to give up the $400 for the uh, collegial atmosphere. Okay. Uh, and at Ohio State, there were people like uh, Bill Davidson, Art Coleman, uh, Ted Beckman, uh, mm -hmm. in the marketing group at that time, who were particularly welcoming. There was no one in logistics, so I, I didn't have anyone to welcome me. Uh, a course in transportation was being taught by a motor carrier executive, uh, a fellow named uh, uh, James Riley, called him Ralph, Ralph Riley. Okay. Um, who always claimed that I got his job. Uh, I think he was always uh, joking about it. I was never quite sure. But uh, uh, nevertheless, it was a, a, a collegial atmosphere there. Okay. So when Ohio State hired you, did they hire you specifically to teach the transportation course plus other marketing courses? or? What uh, was the specific position that they wanted you that for? It was basically to teach that course um, and to teach marketing as well. Uh, at Ohio State, as at many other schools, um, there was very little concern about uh, how you taught or what you taught as long as it was within the subject area. You were basically king in my case king of your domain and um, so I was able to uh, teach transportation but slowly bring in the logistics material as well. In marketing I believe I taught a basic marketing course and MBA marketing as well. You know, Jim as we mentioned in overviewing your career um, in 1965 you took a leave Mm -hmm. uh, to form this logistics consulting firm. What was the motivation to do that? And then subsequent that going to Harvard as opposed to staying at Ohio State? Well, uh, let me uh, just correct the sequence just a bit. Okay. Uh, I did uh, leave Ohio State, but I took a visiting position at Harvard. Ah, okay. And it was during the time of that uh, 
associate professorship, essentially, which extended for several years, uh, that I actually took the leave to head up uh, this group called Business Logistics. Uh, so I had, uh, in a sense, moved geographically uh, and established uh, this group uh, in Cambridge, Massachusetts. Okay. Uh, the um, my colleagues thought I was out of my mind. Uh, it was an opportunity that came along. I suppose I've always had the desire to be a practitioner in the back of my mind, and this was an opportunity to put together a group to do some consulting in logistics. Um, because I was up for tenure and full rank uh, during the time that I was away from campus, mm -hmm. so. Uh, that was not considered by my colleagues at Harvard to be a good move, uh, a wise move. Uh, I had one uh, uh, close colleague, a guy named Bob Bazell, who, mm -hmm. with whom I had, uh, who had taught at Ohio State. Bob had, I had just missed him there, but uh, who advised me not to leave at that time. And I said, well, you know, Bob, they're either going to promote me or they're not on the basis of what I've already done. And um, this is something I'd really like to do. So I was actually promoted while I was away from campus. Okay. Now, it's interesting, Jim, you used the term logistics. Mm -hmm. And we know at that time most folks thought physical distribution. The inbound side yeah. was not really considered. Right. When did you sort of transition from that physical distribution to the logistics component? Well, my thesis was called industrial logistics. Uh, so I guess I was thinking of it early on. Okay. And uh, if I pulled that thesis off the shelf, I think I have a diagram in there of the inbound and outbound uh, uh, processes. But the, uh, and I've always really thought of it in that fashion. Maybe it was the Maybe it was the military background of Gate and Germain that encouraged me in that regard. Can't remember. But um, I, I've always used that term, uh, even when we were obviously uh, in the early days of the Council, National Council of Physical Distribution Management. It always seemed to me that distribution was one side of the uh, coin, but there was another side as well. Okay. Very good. Now, when you look back at Ohio State and, and the majority of your career was at Harvard, um, of all the things you've done, and there's quite a number of those, what do you think, from your perspective, do you think was the most significant? Well, <laughs> I think we're probably, uh, uh, those of us who do things like this, as you do, uh, probably the least qualified to uh, to name the most significant. The one that probably has had the biggest impact on on my career, uh, given the fact that uh, about the first half of that uh, career has been in logistics and the second half in service management. Um, I think probably the, the, the most significant for me was 
uh, putting together a set of ideas that had been posed by others into something we called the service I called the service profit chain going back in the early 80s um, I was actually sent to Switzerland to um, to close down an executive program on behalf of the Harvard Business School and sitting in that office over there for a year up on the mountainside with uh, cows looking in through the window I had a lot of time to think about things and uh, basically put together this set of ideas that uh, that uh, resulted in a book that I wrote called Managing in the Service Economy that outlined a couple of things. First of all, a, a strategic service vision, a kind of a framework for thinking about strategy. And then uh, this set of relationships uh, in which uh, basically employee satisfaction, commitment, and uh, loyalty drives customer satisfaction, loyalty and commitment, which in turn drives profit. Uh, relationships weren't proven until later, that is mathematically, but it seemed to me that that was the right set of relationships. And uh, it has provided a, another 20 years of research, which uh, for an academic is, uh, is like red meat, sure. I guess. So Jim, as you look back at your uh, uh, career, uh, and it's still continuing, you're still involved in, in working, what um, do you think will be viewed by others as your most significant contribution? Well, I, I suspect it, it's probably this work around the service profit chain. Uh, I, I, I have the feeling that um, what I did in logistics was not nearly as significant as what some of my colleagues at other schools had done. Um, the, uh, some of the earliest influential thinking in the field for me was a study that was done in 1954, ironically, at the Harvard Business School on air freight and total distribution or something. The economics of air freight, the Culleton, Steele, those folks? James Culleton mm -hmm. and a guy named Steele, right. I don't think I ever met them. Uh, but that was that was influential for me. I suspect it was influential for a couple of guys at Michigan State, Ed Smike and Don Bowersox, who then came out two or three years later with what I thought was a terrific book, uh, Physical Distribution Management, perhaps, uh, and one that um, that was in sync with what I was doing uh, in my thesis work at that point. I hadn't, I hadn't finished my thesis and I, maybe their book came out in 59, I'm not quite sure. But it confirmed in many ways what I was thinking about um, and, uh, and certainly influenced uh, Nick Glaskowski and Bob Ivey and myself when we did our first book in business logistics which was 62. So, uh, you know, we were, we were not pioneering much of anything in terms of ideas, but extending ideas that uh, that were being developed, I think, quite rapidly and successfully by people on other campuses. Mm -hmm. Now, you mentioned that at Stanford you met uh, Ivy, 
and Nicholas Kowski and so yeah. forth. How did that relationship uh, continue after Stanford, particularly into a book? Well, uh, uh, Nick had moved on to the University of Minnesota, I believe, and we continued to correspond. I went back to Stanford to teach in a summer program so that there was still uh, uh, some relationship there and we uh, decided that uh, my thesis, I believe, might contain the seeds of a book but that it was not publishable uh, the way it was written. And so we actually went about this in a very workmanlike way. We rented an office in Menlo Park, California, um, and Bob and Nick and I had office space, and we literally sat there uh, writing chapters and, and uh, passing material back and forth uh, for a summer. I, I believe it was the summer of 61, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, and uh, essentially hammered out the book that was then published in the subsequent year. Uh, we've since drifted apart. Nick has retired. Uh, I've lost track of Bob. Uh, but uh, for those few years, we did maintain that relationship. Now, did you have a book contract, or was that something you submitted to Ronald Press and others after the book was written? I think I think we had a contract, uh, and I, I I can't remember how that process came about, but um, I don't think we wrote a manuscript and submitted it. Okay. All right. Now, as you look at your career, and again, we know you're still uh, active, is there something that um, at this point in your career you say, I wish I would have done this? Oh, there are a lot of things that <laughs> <laughs> I can say I wish I uh, had done. Um, uh, I wish I would have written that Smike A. Bowersox book, mm -hmm. uh, for one thing, or the Culleton Steel uh, book, for that matter. Uh, but um, uh, I suspect uh, I would have liked to, and I may still have a chance to correct this, uh, I would have liked to have done more in the corporate culture and performance mm -hmm. area. I did the one piece of work with John Cotter, uh, and uh, it was of the sort that I like to do. That is... Uh, actually kind of uh, putting together uh, systematic anecdotal research based on uh, database examination, uh, which that book was all about. I think there is still a, a, a good piece of work to be done in that area. Um, uh, but that's sort of the latest thing that I mm -hmm. wish I had uh, uh, I wish I had written uh, uh, "Built to Last" or "Good to Great" as far as that <laughs> as far as that goes. <laughs> yes, very interesting book. Um, you mentioned Gaten Germain in masters and PhDs being a mentor and influencer. Mm -hmm. uh, did you have any mentors once you were a faculty member? I had several uh, at Ohio State. I think. Uh, uh, clearly, uh, 
Bill Davidson, Art Kalman uh, were were quite effective. Uh, stayed in touch with both of them throughout Art's life, and still I'm in touch with Bill Davidson uh, in in his retirement. Um, I uh, uh, Lou Stern was not so much a mentor as a uh, a close colleague. We did some writing mm -hmm. together. Lou went on to Northwestern, uh, so. Uh, there was a there was a really supportive um, atmosphere at Ohio State that helped me, uh, I think, uh, do what I was able to do. At Harvard, um, I th uh, I think the um, role of mentor was passed on to, in a sense, to then Dean George Baker. Uh, Gaten Germain had been a student. George Baker's, ah, interesting. Uh, and Gaten essentially provided the introduction, if you will, um, that probably led to my ultimate appointment. But after I arrived at Harvard, um, uh, George Baker continued to uh, provide advice in his fatherly, stentorian, Brahmin. Uh, tones from, and uh, I'll never forget one day he called me in and he said uh, something I'll never be able to understand he said uh, you've completed the requirements said for uh, for a full professorship but you're too young <laughs> you're going to have to wait another couple of years I never I never quite understood that Interesting philosophy that still exists, I believe. Um, <laughs> in terms of um, people, events, um, all those things, what do you think was the biggest and most significant event that took place uh, as a faculty member that has influenced you? Oh, I, uh, I think there have been many, but... Uh I suppose the uh, I suppose the offer from Harvard for this reason. Uh, first of all, it enabled me to do more and I think better work in the whole area of case development because mm -hmm. of the orientation of the school and the fact that uh, it's a school with um, not many limits on resources. Mm -hmm. uh, the limits at that school are time not money and uh, you can you can basically do what you're capable of doing um, there are no excuses uh, and resource you know availability of resources are, is not an excuse up there and um, I think that probably has influenced me as much but of course uh, that wouldn't have been possible without Ohio State so mm -hmm. Now, do you think in terms of the way you have uh, conducted your professional life, have you done that with some basic either mission statement or creed or uh, philosophy? Well, I basically operated from five-year plans, um, which hardly ever turn out the way you uh, plan. Um, the I've... Uh, played a long-term administrative role at, at the Harvard Business School, and I probably would not have had that in my plan. Mm -hmm. 
uh, up until the time I was asked to uh, become a, a part of a track that would lead into administration. At one time I was the uh, senior uh, associate dean uh, responsible for all the academic programs at the school, which was probably the biggest job I had during this time. Uh, but over a period of uh, uh, at least 15 years uh, played a major role in administration that uh, uh, factored into the plan uh, going forward. But um, I think the, the idea has always been to um, plan in terms of courses, in terms of influencing students, um, and uh, various phases of this career have sort of been chunked out in different areas. Um, I, I'm sure there was a conscious decision to move from logistics to uh, services, for example. Uh, and then the, uh, the second um, uh, Sorry, the, the uh, coming out of retirement uh, in 1990, in, in 2002, I then had a five-year chunk in uh, uh, entrepreneurial management. So uh, I suppose in a sense, if, you, if I went back, uh, I'd, there'd be a pattern there. And certainly, uh, if there, were con there was conscious planning. Okay. Now you mentioned uh, Harvard with the sort of limitless uh, resources. Do you think that was the ideal job for you? Or could it have been something else? Well, it certainly could have been something else, but one reason why it uh, was ideal was that um, on the one hand, uh, we had courses in which there were teaching groups that that worked closely together and they helped me learn the ropes. Uh, first year marketing was one of those courses. On the other, I was teaching this second year logistics course, which, which was mine. And so I had, a, I had both the structure on the one hand, but I had the freedom on the other. And over the years, it was the freedom, uh, I think, that uh, I really came to value um, as... Uh, People say you you make your own way there. There isn't a lot of uh, there isn't a lot of instruction, and uh, so a relatively free form environment I think was uh, it, it appealed to me. Now, Jim, shifting gears for a moment, uh, in some of your early comments you mentioned uh, some interesting terms, being a prince and a king. Uh, you mentioned uh, taking your future wife to a, uh, a professor's home with discussion groups and so forth. Uh, I want to talk a little bit about the personal side of, of Jim Heskett and sure. uh, tell us a little bit about uh, your family, your wife, do you have children mm -hmm. and so forth. What are they doing? And All right. Fine. Uh, I met my wife in college. Um, I think it was during my senior year, as a matter of fact, um, maybe a little earlier. Um, went off to the Army and... Uh, Upon arriving in Europe and seeing what great possibilities there were there, I wrote back to her and invited her to come to Europe and get married. So we were married in uh, 
Austria. We had, and then we had a church wedding in Germany. And um, so you proposed through the mail. I proposed through the mail. Oh, interesting. Yes. Yeah. As a matter of fact, I think maybe I proposed in Indianapolis. I'm not sure, but uh, that was kind of an indefinite engagement, as I recall. And uh, I actually wrote the letter from Europe and said, "Why don't you come over?" And uh, that was. Uh, that was 54 years ago. So we're, uh, we were married in 1955. Uh, we've had uh, three children, a daughter Sarah and a, a son Charles and a, and a son Ben. Our daughter Sarah is a librarian and lives in Cambridge uh, with us. Uh, not with us, but she lives in Cambridge, Massachusetts. Our son Ben is an entrepreneur out in San Francisco. Uh, in the, kind of the high-tech world, and um, and our son Charles is a is in a buyout firm in New York, okay. with uh, with good buyout opportunities and uh, very little credit available to engineer the transactions. Mm -hmm. uh, we've uh, lived in and around. Cambridge and Belmont, Massachusetts during most of that time after having moved from Columbus. So uh, we've had uh, a wonderful life together, still still are, mm -hmm. and, uh, and enjoy combining a little work with uh, a daily walk on the beach. Okay. I've noticed in several of your books you've uh, dedicated to your wife. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Now, when your children were small and growing up, what was your main goal as a parent for them? Well, um, as most of us have experienced, uh, uh, children can be pretty rebellious. And uh, Marilyn and I decided fairly early on that our main goal was to, uh, it was to remain friends with our children for their entire lives and our entire lives and that's what we've really tried to do very good I think we're on track yeah. but uh, one never knows for sure you know <laughs> some have said that uh, children go through a rebellious period but then by the time they turn 30 they come back yeah but uh, I think I think that's true to some extent uh, so when you look at your children uh, none of them are involved in your profession. They're doing other no. things. What do you think was the biggest influence you had on them? Well, uh, I would hope that um, it it really had to do with a certain amount of integrity um, and uh, a responsibility toward others, um, the value of close friends, and, and maintaining the quality of those those relationships, um, I think I would hope maybe a work ethic. Uh, there were a lot of days when uh, I was out early and home late or not home at all. Uh, we've both experienced uh, those on travel days and the like. Um, but nevertheless, uh, an effort not to be gone for more than two or three nights. Maximum. We arrived at that goal pretty early on, and to try to be there uh, for dinner at night, which 
turned out to be, I think, a very important uh, element of, of what we did. Uh, also breakfast, but uh, breakfast was always more helter-skelter uh, mm -hmm. with kids going to school and the like. Uh, nevertheless, a certain regularity and a, and a certain kind of level of integrity in one's life, I hope. Supply Chain is Boring is part of the Supply Chain Now Network, the voice of supply chain. Interested in sponsoring this show to help get your message out? Send a note to chris at thescdr.com. We can also help with world-class supply chain education and certification workshops for you or your team. Thanks for listening. And remember, supply chain is boring. Supply chain is boring.